Our Father and our God, we are a people who know intimately well that Jesus Christ saves. He alone saves. We spent many years of our lives finding that out. We thought that enough merit that we could store up would do us well when we stood before you, only to discover that your word described us as bankrupt, as men and women whose works were as filthy rags. And then someone told us, Jesus saves. Jesus Christ is the hope of mankind. And on him we have fixed all of our hopes. He alone has merit to stand before you, O God. He alone is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and wisdom and majesty and might and all else. And so we come. We come as lovers of that Savior before the throne of grace to beg for more mercy and more grace in our times of need. So, Father, be worshipped today as we exalt your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Our Father, uh, it has been a troublesome month for this nation. We know not how to understand all the, uh, the difficulty that we have faced as a country, but we do know that our God reigns. And we pray that the church of Jesus Christ might, might step forward in such a way during this, these crises that men and women might take another look at this beautiful Savior of ours. That the Spirit of God might use the church's humility to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in our country, around the globe. Our Father, we are reminded this week that the Great Commission is not limited to Germantown. That there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of ministry to support. There's a lot of giving that needs to be done on the part of affluent people such as we are. And so, God, stir our hearts to newfound heights of generosity. Not so that we can meet a budget. But so that we can advance the Great Commission in our time. Now, Father... Accept our, our gifts compared to what's left over in the checkbook. They are small. But use every dime to bring glory to yourself. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. Guys, um, on the 28th of August, I was in a pulpit uh, in Europe uh, that is normally occupied by our guest speaker this morning. We decided to swap pulpits, and it only cost us about... Uh, uh, $2,500 in total to do it, uh, me flying there and him flying here. But uh, I needed a great deal more introduction in that audience than he needs in this one. Uh, the former pastor of First Evangelical Church, a great friend of Gracie Vans, a great friend of mine, a man who has uh, probably contributed in ways that he did not know uh, to my uh, uh, development as a pastor. Uh, we are always privileged to have him among us the Reverend Ronnie Stevens. I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the name of the incarnate God, crucified, risen, enthroned, en route, back here one day, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ our Lord. 
I'm very happy to be with you here. It's a great morning to sleep, isn't it? And uh, you resisted that. I hope you'll continue to resist it. Uh, I had lunch with an anesthesiologist yesterday. I said, you know, after the first 25 minutes, I'm one too. And, uh, but it's, it's such a sleepy morning. And, um, but I'm glad to worship the Lord with you here today. While you're turning to 2 Samuel 23, I don't have time to tell you why that's a missions text. I hope it will become obvious before we're done why this is a missions text. But I do want to say this. We, um, we mark the anniversary of those who've marked us. Um, there's somebody here this morning who uh, I had breakfast with yesterday, and he's sitting right over there. And he, uh, I told him that this was the 50-year anniversary of the death of James Dean. And he wasn't impressed with that, that I knew the year, because he told me the day. It was this week. It was September 30th. Oh, it's amazing that he knew that. Now, there's another anniversary today, this morning. Today, 160 years ago, today, 160 years ago, the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland died. He was only 29 years old. His name was Robert Murray McShane. McShane is the one who said the greatest thing that a church can have is a Christ-like minister. McShane is the one who said that uh, a godly, a holy minister is an awful thing in the hands of a holy God. Now, I mention that for two reasons. I mention it, first of all, because today's the anniversary and I want you to know it. I mean, 55 is the 50-year anniversary of Einstein's death, James Dean's death. So what? Today's the anniversary of McShane's death. The reason I mention that to you is that even though he was the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland, revival did not fall on his church, St. Peter's Dundee, until he left the church to go on a missions trip to Israel with Andrew and Horatio Bonar. And while he was gone, the fire fell. While he was away, revival came through the preaching of his substitute, the person who took his place, who was the greatest evangelist in the history of Scotland, William Chalmers Burns. So what did William Chalmers Burns do? Because thousands were coming to Jesus where he preached. He left Scotland and went to China. Everyone in Scotland begged him not to go. And it took seven years for Burns to make his first convert. But he inspired a boy in England, in Hull, a medical student named Hudson Taylor. So I just say this, that to say this, thank you for letting him go. You're going to be the beneficiary. And I pray that you let him come back. Now, I'm just going to read a few verses of 2 Samuel 23. And in honor of God and his word, I'd ask you to stand at the reading of the word of God. And I'll explain the context in just a moment. Um, but I'll begin in verse 13 and I'll go to verse 17. Then three, 2 Samuel 23, verse 13. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David 
in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. He said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Father, we thank you for an inspired record. We thank you that it is a model. We pray that you would teach us what we're supposed to know from the words of God and the word of God this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, 2 Samuel 23 is David's eulogy. Somebody's dying and somebody's going to be dead. You're dying too, and we're dying, and we're going to be dead. And hopefully somebody will eulogize us. And this is the way the Scripture eulogizes David. Now, the amazing thing, I find this every time I read the Word of God, is I don't find here what I would have written. That's one reason I know the Bible is the Word of God, because I know a man would not have written it that way, especially this man. If I'm going to eulogize David, I'm going to talk about how he decapitated Goliath. I'm going to talk about how he spoiled the Amalekites and avenged Ziklag. I'm going to talk about how he evicted the Jebusites from Jerusalem in the seventh year of his reign and made it his capital. The inspired eulogist doesn't talk about those things. You know what he talks about? He talks, first, he talks about the fact that David was a worshiper and David was a preacher. The word of God came through his tongue and he was the sweet singer of Israel. He was the psalmist. He was the sweet worshiper of Israel. And what happens in 2 Samuel 23 is that we're taught that he taught others to worship. Now, you know what? He was also the warrior of Israel and he taught others to fight. And amazingly, the eulogy boasts the exploits of those whom David trained. Nearly all the space is taken speaking of the great things done by those whom David trained. It's amazing. His exploits are not put on the marquee, but the exploits of those whom he trained, those who were close to him, and that's what this is about. There's a word. It was translated in the version I use, chief men, uh, at one place, and also mighty men. It's the Hebrew word gadol. That's the singular. The plural is gadolim. And what it means is someone of valor. And the story of David's life is the story of the gadolim, those whom he inspired to valor. And there's a recounting of some of the things they did. There's a reminiscing. David is dying. And so the reminiscing goes about the great things done by those whom he trained. It's an amazing, amazing object lesson. In 2 Samuel 23, there are also reports in the Chronicles about uh, this band of brothers, this role of honor. And the Scripture says uh, in, in verse 8, These are the names. 
Daniel 11.32 says the people who know their God will be strong and they will do exploits. What people? These people. These are their names. Their names which most of us don't know. It says that these are the names of the mighty men, verse 8, whom David had, who belonged to David, who has you. Who do you belong to? Somebody has you. And, and, and David had these men. I just met a hero who lives in Iraq. He's a Scottish doctor. And I wept as I got to know him because he's so brave. And he's given up so much. And I remembered one of my favorite stories, the story of the surrender of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mentioned the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland, McShane, the greatest preacher in the history of Wales, was somebody who lived during our lifetime. As a matter of fact, I exchanged letters with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he died on my daughter's second birthday, March 1st, 1981. And Lloyd-Jones was a doctor, and not just any doctor. He was the chief clinical assistant to Lord Thomas Horder, who was the king's physician, the most famous doctor in England. And it wasn't just that he was a doctor, but his wife was a doctor. And she got her medical degree in 1927. They didn't give away medical degrees to women in 1927. Can you imagine how high above the threshold she must have been? And what a gift she must have had to be a physician as a woman in Britain in 1927. And they got married and they had this brilliant career ahead of them as, as doctors. And they began to struggle with his perception of a call of God on his life to preach. And 100% of the people he went to told him not to do it. He went to his own pastor at Charing Cross Welch Chapel in London. And you know what his pastor told him? His pastor said, Martin, if I had my life to live over, I'd be a doctor. And he talks about how soon after they were married, they had friends who'd just gotten married in, in Wales and they came to London on their honeymoon. So they went to the theater and they, they went to the West End there in London and they were after the play was over, they were walking out of one of those uh, fashionable West End London theaters with the glittering crowd, and everybody was pulling their, their, uh, their furs around their neck because it was near Christmas, and as often happens as Christmas, I had the privilege of having a meal yesterday with the new uh, chairman of the Women's Auxiliary of the Salvation Army in Memphis. There was a Salvation Army band that came down the street blowing their horns and beating their drums, and it was so embarrassing because... Um, they were shabbily dressed, and they were street preachers. And this was a glittering West End London crowd. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, in that moment, I was frozen. And I felt like the pilgrims in Wagner's opera, Tannhäuser. He said, that's what I thought about. The pilgrims who hear the call of the world and another call. And he said, I looked at that West End crowd around me. And I, I realized these people that I had just gone to the play with, and I realized these are not my people. And I said, I looked at those shabby gospelers. And I said, these are my people. They're going to belong to me. And I'm going to belong to them. And he resigned his practice. And he never went. Who do you belong to? These men belong to David. Now, what I want to know, and this is the first point, is why were they great? Why were they great? And the secret is even in the first words of verse 13. They were three of the 30. Well, what does that mean? Well, 
There were circles of intimacy around David. They were great because of their intimacy with the king. There are circles of intimacy around the Lord Jesus Christ. There was the multitude. There was the 70, Luke 10, Matthew 10. There were the 12. There were the three, uh, Peter, James, and John. There was the one, the one who put his head right here, whose name was John. There were those who were close to the Lord, and there were those who were closer to the Lord, and there were those who were closest. During the last years of his life, I had a friendship with J. Oswald Sanders. We exchanged letters. We met in Germany, and, and uh, I used to cherish a tape that shows you how egotistical I am. I used to play it over and over because on the tape, J. Oswald Sanders mentioned my name. And I just flipped that tape back and I listened to it. Now, I, I wish that, and maybe I should leave you with the impression that he was quoting something profound and sagacious that I said, and that's why he brought me up. But here's what he said, which will give you an idea how egotistical I am that I would play it over and over. He said, Ronnie, would you close the meeting in prayer? I savored it. You know what he said in that meeting? He said, even though I've never met you, I know how close each one of you is to the Lord, and I can tell you how close you are. He said, you're as close as you choose to be. That may sound very Arminian, but it's very biblical, because James says that if we draw close to the Lord, He will draw close to us. And the reality is, if we're... Uh, Not as close now as we used to be to the Lord. There's no doubt as to who moved. Because the the Lord didn't move away from us. These were those who were close to David. They came to him. They presented themselves to him. And by the way, this is something we keep doing over and over. There's a misunderstanding of the application of the tents in Romans 12. And I often hear it preached that, that, um, Oh, this is something you only do once. No, it's not. It's something you do over and over. There is a definitive positional reality of how close we are to the Lord because we're placed in Jesus. But that's really not what's in view in terms of our devotional life. My wife has a friend in Budapest, and her email name is Philippians310 at yahoo.com. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says, that I may know him. But he already knows him. Yes, but that I may know him. That I may know him better. And they, they already knew David, but they presented themselves to him again. They presented themselves to him at a time when he couldn't do anything for them. You see, he lived in a cave. That's what it said. They went down to David at the harvest time to the cave of, the, of Adullam. They presented himself to him when, um, when they had something else to do. You see, it was harvest time. Did you notice that? They came at a time when it was vital for them to be at home. There wasn't any refrigeration. There wasn't any storage. This was an agrarian society. You either got it when it came out of the ground or you didn't get it. And they came and presented themselves to David at the time of harvest. And let me just tell you something. There are always two harvests, okay? There's your harvest and there's God's harvests. And we better make sure which is which. And we better make sure which comes first. They made sure. They came to David. They presented themselves to him at the, har- at the time of harvest. He couldn't do anything for them. They wanted to be with him. The greatest verse on discipleship 
in the Gospels is in the least read Gospel. The most complete and succinct description of discipleship and even of apostleship in one verse is found in our least read Gospel, Mark 3.14. He appointed twelve that they might be with them. That's what, a, that's what a disciple does. A disciple comes near to learn and that he might send them out to preach. That's what an apostle does. An apostle is sent out to teach. We come near to learn so that we can go out to teach, Mark 3.14. But the first qualification is that we're with him. I remember hearing Dr. Sanders say in that same meeting that if in ancient times there was the perfumer's shop, and if you ever went into the perfumer's shop, when you came out, the fragrance lingered. And it's very obvious who's been with him and who's lingered in his presence and who hasn't. And they were with him. They went to him. You want to, know, you want to do something for, in missions? You want to go out for the Lord? Don't go out to the Lord. Go up to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Draw close to the Lord. That's the first thing you do. And you better not go out until you've gone up or you're going to make a mess. You're going to make a big mess. The second thing they say, the second thing they see is um, they went to him at a time when he appeared to be losing. He wasn't winning, he was losing. Verses 13 and 14. He was in the cave. The Philistines were camped at Rephaim. He was in the stronghold. He was holed up, hiding. The garrison of the fifth Philistines was in his hometown, was in Bethlehem. That's what it says in verse 14. They appeared to be losing. One of my favorite um, teachers is Gerhardus Voss. He died in 1949. He was born in Holland, and he, his family moved to America when he was a boy. And He was one of the great giants at Princeton when it was the greatest seminary in the world. And I was reading a sermon by Voss the other day that he preached at the Princeton Chapel in 1903. He was a post-millennialist, and he believed that Christianity had won. And he described the, the position of Christianity in the world, mainly because of the British Empire, as one which was unassaultable and which was dominant and would always be dominant in the world with no shadows or threats. He was wrong. He was a great exegete. He was a great interpreter of the Scripture, but he was a poor predictor of history. My brother-in-law teaches economics. He's a professor of economics, and he says the best magazine in the world is The Economist. He's prejudiced. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he says. It comes out of London. And The Economist has recently projected that within 50 years, Europe will be a satellite of Islam. You know Why? Because they believe something. And Europe doesn't. And it would appear that we're losing. Let me tell you something. We're not. We're not. We've won. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We've already won. C.T. Studd, who gave away everything. There are a lot of people who give away most of the income on their capital. Missionaries love to meet them. We'll even buy your breakfast. As a matter of fact, we'll, we'll do anything to meet you, practically. I only know of one who, who gave away the capital. 
There were probably lots of them, but I only know of one. His name was C.T. Studd. He was a multimillionaire. His father was one of the great planters in India. He was also the best cricket player in England. He gave away everything. He almost didn't do it because he was afraid that his fiancée would feel cheated. And so he laid it out before her, and she looked him in the eye and said, Give it away. And he did. And when he was found in Africa in 1931, first he went to China and then to Africa, he owned almost nothing. And there was a little scrap of verse, three lines among his belongings. Here's what it said. Let the victors when they come. You know what he was saying? He was saying, oh, we've won. I may die. I may not live on this earth to see the great triumph, but it's coming. Let the victors when they come, when the forts of folly fall, find my body near the wall. When I went to Moscow, one of the best people I've ever known sent me a letter. and He said, don't do it. You're just showing off. It'll hurt your kids. All my kids will be here today. One's in this service. Two will be in another service. The greatest thing that ever happened to them is that they moved to Russia. The edifying effects still linger. And then just a month ago, another friend, who's not the best person I've ever known, he's probably the most feisty, and he's the one who talks to me like, well, it would end most friendships. We talk like that to each other. He sent me a letter that said the exact same thing. I was involved in some things, and he said, don't do it. You're just showing off. You're just trying to be a part of that wall thing. And he meant the quote from C.T. Studd. And he wrote me a long letter. I wrote him back a one-sentence letter, three lines. That's all I said. Dear Alec, let the victors, when they come, when the forts of folly fall, find me shopping at the mall. Ronnie. He let me alone. We've already won. It may not seem like we won, but we have. And they were on the right side, even though it didn't seem like it. Third thing, they found out what he wanted. They Now, first of all, I hope you have a burden of prayer. And I don't know what your burden is in prayer, but I'll tell you what the burden of a lot of Christians is in prayer. The burden is to let God know what they want. Now, that's not a bad thing to do. David says, all my desire is before him. Philippians 4 says, you need to tell him everything. In everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests, your requests, not the request that you ought to have, but the request that you do have, be made known to him. So that's okay as one component of prayer. But it shouldn't be our great burden of prayer to make sure that an omniscient being knows what we want. Maybe our burden, since we're not omniscient, Maybe our burden in prayer should be, now this is, this is a new approach, should be to find out what he wants. Do you ever think of that? That's why they went to the cave. They wanted to be with him. And they wanted to know what he wanted. Oswald Chambers, writing on maybe the greatest Old Testament missionary text, Isaiah 6. Oswald Chambers said Isaiah was so close to the Lord, he could hear the Lord talking to himself. And when the Lord says, whom shall I send? Isaiah overheard the soliloquy of God's. 
because he was so close to the Lord. So Isaiah jumped up and said, here I am, send me, I'll go. Because he, he found out what God wanted. He found out that God wanted somebody to send. So he said, send me. I don't want to send you. That would be disastrous. What if one of your kids died and I sent you? How could I ever make that up to you? I don't want to send anybody. I want us to go to the Lord and find out what He wants. Maybe He wants us to stay. We won't know unless we find out what He wants. And that's what they did. They found out what He wanted. And and David, in a a kind of reverie, talking to himself, he said, you know what I really like? I like a drink of water from my favorite water fountain. And of course, he wasn't telling them to do anything. They found out that would refresh him. You know, there's a text. It's the text, uh, the letter to the Laodiceans, Revelation 3. And it's, pardon me for saying this, but it's always taught wrong. You always hear it. Um, now, Jesus would rather us be cold than to be hot. So it's better to be cold in our fervor for him than to be lukewarm. That's not what it means. It has nothing to do with fervor. Jesus is not addressing fervor. If that were true, he'd be saying, now, when you make progress from your coldness and you start to get a little bit warm, a little bit warm, I don't want that. I want you to stay in a position of coldness. That's a totally incoherent view. It couldn't mean that. Plus, it would also make his imagery just kind of a, his imagery just kind of a gratuitous crudeness because he talks about spitting you out of his mouth. That's not what it means. The passage is not addressing the fervor that Christ wants in us. The passage is addressing the refreshment that he wants for himself in our lives and what we offer him. Um, a, a drink that's hot is refreshing. And a drink that's cold is refreshing. But a drink that's lukewarm is not. Refreshing. You start to drink something that's lukewarm, you want to spit it out of your mouth. That's all he's saying. It's not about fervor. It's about something else. And one of the great burdens of our life should be to find out what refreshes our Lord Jesus and to give it to Him. To bring it to Him. And that's what they did. And I'm out of time, but uh, the last thing is they went after it, and they got it. Now, what he wanted was garrisoned. You say, well, how do I know? What do I know what God really wants? Let me give you a hint. This is just one way to find out. It's not the only way to find out. There are bunches of other ways and maybe more important ways to find out. But I'll give you a little hint that comes from the text. One way you can find out what the Lord wants is that the devil's guarding it. The devil's guarding it. And you may have to break through the garrison to go get it. And, you know, it doesn't say so in the text, but I got the impression that somebody got hurt. Now, in this case, somebody got hurt that they wanted to hurt. But you know what? If you go get something refreshing for the Lord, somebody might get hurt that you don't want to hurt. But that's not the point, is it? The point is that that he'd be refreshed. 
And when they got it, and I know I've got to stop, they came and they gave it to him. Now, I want, I want to tell you before I step down from here, I'm going to tell you about another anniversary which is drawing near. I began by talking about a 50-year anniversary. And I'm going to tell you about another 50-year uh, anniversary which is drawing near. It's the anniversary of something we'll call the Alka Martyrdom. It's coming up in January. And many of you will know what that means. Some choice ones among you, if I say Roger Udarian, uh, if I say Ed McCulley, if I say Pete Fleming, you'll know who that is. And a few more of you, if I say Nate Saint, you'll know who that is. And a few more of you, if I say Jim Elliott, you'll know who that is. There are people in this room who can name the starting lineup of the New York Yankees in 1961. There are people in this room who can name the starting lineup of the Tiger team that played Bill Walton in the finals of the NCAA championship, 73, 72. I, I'm not a Memphian. I can't give you the exact year, but it's right along in there. People in this room, more people, now that's the men. There are people in this room who can name not only the Beatles, but their wives. But we don't know who Roger Udarian is. He parachuted into the Battle of the Bulge after uh, growing up with polio. And one of the five was the National Collegiate Debating Champion. Another of the five was a valedictorian. And um, on a January morning in 1956 on the banks of the Curarai River in Ecuador, they were slaughtered. Now, there are, there are a lot of Christians who know that. Let me tell you something that, not, that some of those Christians don't know. They were slaughtered by only four Indians. And there were five of them. And they were athletes. Jim Elliott was a wrestling champion. I'll tell you something else. They had guns. The missionaries had the guns, not the Indians. But they'd made a covenant, a sacred oath among themselves that... If it came a choice between them dying and going to heaven or an Indian dying and going to hell, they were going to die. And on the day after their bodies were recovered, there was a, a, a huge headline across the largest daily newspaper in Ecuador. Now, you see, what David did when he got the water, he poured it out. And our reflex response to that is, why did he waste it? Because he was a worshiper. Because he had his priorities straight. Because he knew there were certain things that should never be offered to a pastor or a king or a Bible study leader, but can only be offered to the Lord. And he, what he was saying, I'm not, he, he wasn't devaluing them. He was putting the highest value on them. He said, your lives are so important that you can only risk your life for God. You can't risk your life for me. And you know what was on the headlines in Ecuador the morning after? Porque este desperdicio. Porque este desperdicio. Why this waste? You see, that's the world's point of view. You give it up for him. You go out for him. That's a waste as far as the world's concerned. Many of us, maybe most of us, won't meet again in another room in this life. We'll meet in another room in a better life. It's... We will meet in the sphere of the cast crowns. 
We'll know then what valuable things are for. Valuable things like crowns. We will cast them at his feet. This morning I prayed for me and I prayed for you. Here's what I prayed. I hope, God, at that moment, I got something to throw. I hope you do too.